Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We share our memories of the 2003 blackout. Burlington's mayor fires back at Ford. Hamilton's encampment plan takes shape. And a new boss for a local food bank. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. 20 years ago today marks the big blackout of 2003 in which millions of homes and businesses in Hamilton, throughout Ontario, and eight U.S. states were without power. More than 50 million people, I was going to say 50,000, no, 50 million people lost power. Some of them for a few hours, others, unfortunately, for a few days. Ontario Energy Minister Todd Smith says he remembers it well. I mean, every time I fly over the waterfront uh, in Toronto at night and I see all the lights uh, that are on in in all of the buildings, I certainly think about the responsibility that we have, uh, those of us who work in the energy sector, uh, to ensure that we have a reliable electricity system. Our next guest was the manager of the main control centre for Ontario's power grid during the 03 blackout. Put yourself in that situation. (laughs) And the expletives that were hurled, I am sure. Kim Warren is now a senior counsel with Sussex Strategy Group and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Kim, good morning. How are you? Very good, Rick. How are you? I'm good. 20 years ago, 4.11 p.m., the lights go out, and you say what? I was in the hall outside the control room, so I was talking to a few people, so I said, excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) And I walked into the control room, and... uh, and as you can imagine, everything was falling down around us. It's, it's a very large room with a very, like, a 100-foot-long monitor at the front. There's seven desks, seven people in there. They each have 10 to 12 monitors on these large desks. It was quiet, actually. Uh, there, was not a lot of, uh, there was not a lot of conversation going on. And all I did was walk up to the fellow that was in charge and ask them, is this real? And he said, just give me a moment. And he took about 20 seconds, and we were getting reports in from the nuclear units that they had tripped. And he just turned around and said, yes. That was all he said. And I said, uh, I'll get you some help. Uh, you know, implement the restoration plan and get to the nuclear fleet. And, and that was it. And when did you realize how widespread this was? Immediately. Really? It, it, w- it was catastrophic. Um, within about a minute, we were speaking with New York State operations staff. We knew that half of their state had imploded. We knew there was something going on west of us, but we weren't sure what. Um, it wasn't. It was probably 30 minutes into the event that we told our senior operations staff, who we were speaking to the Provincial uh, Emergency Operating Center, that. Um, there was the, the cause of, there's something anomalous, I'll call it, <laughs> south and west of us that we believe might have been the root of the problem, but it was not Ontario. And so how long were you in this control center? Was this like a nonstop, you're staying at work, everybody else is you know, just hunkered down? Give us a, paint a picture for our listeners on, on the mood, the scenario, and, and how long you guys were there for. Okay, so, I mean, the control center staff around the clock every day. They're on 12-hour shifts. Um, following this event, we went actually to six-hour shifts because it was an awfully intense environment for quite a few days. Um, personally, I, I went home sometime after midnight, picked up a suitcase that my wife had packed for me, and I came back home again on Saturday. It started on Thursday. 
So it was significant. If you remember the following week, actually, the province went into emergency operating state, asked people to curtail the use of electricity for a full week and large industrials to only consume half their normal loads. So we were in quite a predicament for an extended period of time, basically because as the system imploded, it negatively affected a lot of our very large generating units, and they took some days to return to service, the, the nuclear fleet in particular, but it's, that's the way it's designed. Kim Warren is uh, currently a senior counsel of the Sussex Strategy Group. But back in 2003, on this day, the 20-year anniversary of the massive blackout that blackened Ontario and eight U.S. states, he was the manager of the main control centre for Ontario's power grid at that time. What was the biggest concern when the lights went out? The number one priority is to return power back to the nuclear fleet. Uh, and then we rebuild the transmission, but we, we wanted to get to the load centers. We knew that that everything basically in the province, other than from Wawa to, to Kenora, was in the dark. And we know that the health and safety and the economy of the province is of paramount importance, obviously. So we wanted to get to the load centers before before it got dark. And we weren't able to do that. We got, we got to the load centers probably by about 11.30 p.m. We had the grid reconnected in Ontario. So there was some frustration there that it took as long as it did, but but actually, in the end, we were shown to have probably one of the most successful restorations ever in any blackout anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. It just, it just took a while. There there were a lot of cities, a lot of states who were without it for, for days, which is just mind-boggling. Um, but, hey, it, it's 2003. The technology wasn't as, uh, wasn't as uh, I guess, robust as it is now. But there was also a lot of finger-pointing as to the suspected cause. I mean, one of the one of the original theories was that, oh, here's terrorism again. Obviously, it did not turn out to be that way. Talk about the blame game, because there was a lot of it back then. Oh, yeah. So uh, that was one of the reasons why some of our nuclear fleet didn't return to service. They put it in a safe shutdown state, because as you remember, some of those decisions are made independently at the, at the stations themselves, and it wasn't the 9-11. So there were things in people's minds that turned out to be false. Um, about an hour into event, the New York press was reporting that Ontario had caused the disturbance. And that was coming from, I believe, the mayor of New York City, the governor of New York State, and then later on some of the federal voices in the United States. And that came into our control room, actually, because we were being asked to prove that it wasn't us at the same time we were trying to restore the power grid in Ontario. Um, it was about... 2 or 3 a.m. Friday morning that we had enough pieces of the puzzle that we knew exactly what the cause was um, down in Ohio and some of the people that are responsible for those areas that manage that, that those, those assets. So by morning the next time, it was pretty, pretty well known that the problem did not occur in Ontario. And when you heard that it was a power line in Ohio that apparently got snagged on a tree that, that tripped this whole thing, what were you thinking? Oh, well, there's a lot of frustration and anger that comes out of those times. I mean, it's, that, that type of thing is just never supposed to happen. We all, we all operate to the same general rules. Uh, we can apply them slightly differently how we manage those issues, but we are, we're, we're obligated to be following a set of rules that would prevent that from happening. And as it turned out, they'd been cutting quarters for some time. And on a ver- 
and it just caught up with them. Unfortunately, it caused untold grief here. Um, there's a set of, set of rules that people are supposed to operate to. They were voluntary into the states. They were mandatory here in Ontario. It was kind of ironic that the place that was was more uh, uh, involved in adhering to those rules was the most negatively affected by the whole uh, the whole blackout. But I guess that's just luck for you. Yeah. Kim, uh, thanks for uh, strolling down memory lane with us. Uh, amazing scene 20 years ago, and the memories are still long-lasting. Appreciate the time today, and thanks for joining us. No problem. Take care. Kim Warren uh, was the manager of the main control center for Ontario's power grid during the 03 blackout, now a senior counsel with Sussex Strategy Group. Um, harrowing events, I am sure, all those years ago. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I remember driving home 20 years ago this evening. It was just after 7 p.m. And it was pitch black outside. I mean, and sunset is what, like 8.30 in mid-August? Pitch black. No street lights, no traffic lights, no store signs illuminating in the evening. None of that. All you saw was brake lights and the odd headlight. It was an unbelievable scene. What memories do you have of the 2003 blackout? Engineers spent months unraveling the cause of the blackout and traced it not to New York or Canada, but to a downed power line in Ohio. The theory was it was a tree in suburban Cleveland. And we were like, what? Yeah. (laughs) For content producer Liz Russell's mom, it was a street party and well she's got a number of other stories that she's going to share with us on good morning hamilton on 900 chml lynn russell is a hamiltonian and mother of producer extraordinaire liz russell lynn good morning welcome to the show hi how are you good how are you oh i'm just doing peachy (laughs) what what do you remember about august 14th 2003 um it was hot very hot yeah and um Everybody came out on our street. We had a street party going. Um, one of our neighbors had a generator, so he had it going, and we were able to, I don't know what radio station he was able to pick up, but we were kind of hearing bits of news of what was actually going on. But everybody was out. The kids were all out, and there's a lot of kids on our street, and they were just having a ball. Everybody came out of their houses. It was a street party. Um, we called up to friends to see what was going on up there on the escarpment. And they go, oh, it's really quiet. There's really nobody out. There's <laughs> maybe an older couple walking their dog with a flashlight. What's happening down there? I said, well, we're having a party. Come on down. <laughs> were you at home when the power went out? Were you at work? Yes. No, I was at home. home. No, I was a stay-at-home mom because um, my son has autism. So I was at home when it happened, and, yeah, it was weird at first we're thinking oh it'll come back on in a couple of hours and then nothing and nothing and we're thinking oh, okay so as the night went on we were all out front talking do you remember how long it took for the power to come back on for you guys i think we were about three days wow yeah we were about three days so were you like barbecuing everything or is it just like a huge bash um yeah, in some sense. Um, the next morning, my neighbor Pat across the street come over, and she says to me, 
I could really go for a cup of tea. And I said, well, I'll go put the kettle on. And she goes, ha-ha, very funny, Lynn. I said, Pat, I have a gas stove. She goes, I'll be right back with my tea bag. <laughs> Was it Orange Pico? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you're obviously in a, in a unique position to help others with uh, having a gas stove. What, yeah. What was, the, it, what was the overall mood like on the street beyond the party atmosphere? I'm sure there was a little bit of concern. Uh, a little bit, yeah. Um, you know, all of us had barbecues, so, I mean, we were able to, you know, cook food on the barbecues and that. Um, my neighbor to the uh, north of me, he wanted me to turn my oven on to cook all the roast that he had in his oven, in his <laughs> fridge, and I thought, I'm not turning my oven on to cook a roast. Use your barbecue. So, but yeah, after a while, it, you know, after a day, it's like, okay, come on, let's let's get the power back on here, yeah. folks. It's hot. I mean, the kids slept in the basement. It was so hot. Um, the poor dog, he didn't come up from the basement, I don't think, for three days. Well, I don't blame him. Yeah, it was, I remember it was a hot summer that, uh, and that particular day for sure, and the, and the following days as well, and no one had AC, and they couldn't run fans. It was a, uh, it was a lot of... A lot of trouble for a lot of people. Lynn, we'll have to leave it there as we're out of time. I appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Lynn Russell, one of uh, the many Hamiltonians who had to uh, struggle through the blackout of 03, but it sounded like there was a party in Lynn's neighborhood. They were having a great time, at least for the first day, and then reality kind of sunk in. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Here's what we know. Back in 2018... February 2018, to be exact. Premier Doug Ford, actually wasn't the premier at the time, at least I don't think, uh, secretly told developers that he would open up a big chunk of the green belt. And then a couple of months later, famously backtracked. You remember, my friends, I've, I've listened to you. You don't want me to open the green belt. I won't. We won't touch the green belt. His words, not mine. Only to again go against his word to Ontarians late last year. We found out they're opening up the green belt. Oh, but they'll put some other lands away. They'll be protected. Don't you worry, my friends. Well, last week, as you know, Ontario's Auditor General said the province's decision to open the Greenbelt to housing construction favored developers with connections to the housing minister's chief of staff. And that land valuation has skyrocketed to $8.3 billion. That's called corruption. That's called collusion. That's called illegal. And so while responding to Bonnie Lissick's report, Premier Ford claimed that one city in particular, he, he, he singled out one city in particular, that city being Burlington, saying that it wasn't building homes fast enough. She's not a bad person. She's a really good person, actually. We get along quite well, and uh, she does a good job. But the numbers aren't there. Now, maybe they're waiting for something. Uh, if we can help them out then we're going to help them out. But when there's just a glaring difference of 5% versus everyone else, all other 28 uh, large municipalities, we have to address it. Premier Doug Ford saying that under the watch of Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward, that city is not building homes fast enough, quote, totally unacceptable in his words. Well, let's introduce you to Marianne Mead Ward, the mayor of Burlington, who joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Marianne, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. Doing very well. How would you like to respond to the Premier's comments about the rate of home building in Burlington? Well, I think the first thing to point out is that municipalities don't build homes. We 
put the planning provisions in place and we issue permits. But it's up to developers to come in and make application and pull permits when their applications have been reviewed and approved by our staff and then actually get shovels in the ground. And we know just in Burlington, we have thousands of units that have been approved that there have been no permits pulled to build those. Uh, there may be very good reasons for that. And I think this is why we have to really have a conversation about the entire housing system and how housing gets built, that uh, supply chain issues, labor, interest rates, these are all reasons that complicate why houses don't get built. So I can tell you that we are uh, issuing permits. We have now, I just had my staff um, pull all of the all of what's in our development pipeline. We have 38,000 units in our development pipeline. So uh, as long as builders come in and make application and pull permits when they've when we've approved them, uh, we should be fine. So but they do the building, we do we issue permits. So the premier should be focusing his attention on developers and maybe the red tape that currently exists. Well, I, I would just say that the permit numbers that were quoted don't tell the whole story. And the other issue in Burlington, which is different really than anywhere else in the GTA, is that we are not building on Greenfield. And we're proud of that. We made a decision a decade ago that we were not going to expand our urban boundary. We weren't going to build into the Greenbelt. We don't need to. So we are focusing our development around our three GO stations, aging retail plazas and major corridors like Fairview Plains. But what that means, it's more complicated and takes a longer time to build these developments. So you could come in for one permit that could be for a high-rise apartment with hundreds of units. So again, that that permit piece simply does not tell the story on the ground. I can tell you when I look out my window, I see cranes in the air. There are hundreds of units being under construction right now. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is the Mayor of Burlington, Marianne Mead Ward. We're talking about uh, home building in Burlington and beyond. Uh, we heard last week from Hamilton Mayor Andrea Horvath, who's now asking the province to back away from its plan to build 50,000 homes on protected land in the Greenbelt in this city. Should the province rethink this whole thing? Well, that was one of the recommendations from the Auditor General, and I think those her report is very disturbing and has to be taken extremely seriously. And, you know, the, the issue that I've always raised is that municipalities know best where housing should go. So work with the municipalities, collaborate with the municipalities, don't impose because you know, they, Hamilton has said they can meet their targets without building on Greenbelt. Burlington has as well. And and thankfully, there was no opening up of Greenbelt land against our will here in Burlington. Uh, but ask the municipalities, work with the municipalities, don't impose. And I think the Auditor General's report was very clear that Greenfield land, Greenbelt land in particular, is not needed to meet housing targets. And in fact, is the most expensive, longest to deliver because there's no servicing there. Madam I'm glad uh, we were able to catch up and clarify the situation in Burlington. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. That is Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, homelessness in Hamilton is certainly a big topic and a very important solution that we need to find. And it's going to be a massive focus today at Hamilton City Hall. The future of 
Local encampments, uh, how to help the shelter system will all be discussed today. You have 6,000 to 8,000 households who are in need, desperate need of affordable housing. The answer to that need in this document, titled that it's meeting needs, is for 500 housing allowances that'll be procured for people to use in the private market to attain housing that way. You have a giant shortfall of people that will still be homeless. Jesse Stearns is a researcher at McMaster University, a former housing and homelessness worker for the city, reflecting on what's being called the People's Protocol. Is it going to provide some real solutions here in Hamilton? Maureen Wilson is the counselor for Ward 1 with the city of Hamilton and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Maureen, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. A lot of people want to know what is going to happen with things like encampments. What does this protocol put in place? Well, I am neither a, a gambler or a fortune teller, so I obviously can't know how the day will unfold. Um, the, I, I really appreciate the insight and words of Ms. Stern, uh, because the, the protocol is addressing a crisis, um, and our goal is to end that crisis, which is homelessness, with housing. Um, the city has been investing considerable dollars we have to continue to lean into it, but we need um, and look forward to uh, the province and the federal government stepping into their rightful rightful roles um, to assist us in, in trying to uphold the dignity and the promise and the rights of all residents. When you're looking at this plan, is there something that really caught your attention and, and really made you think, okay, this is going to work, this will make a difference? Well, I... I genuinely believe that every member of council is looking to make a difference. The, the reason, um, oddly enough, that we ha- have a protocol or at least a, a protocol before us, which is a, a Rick, uh, for your listeners, in case they don't know, it's, um, it's a set of agreed upon sort of rules and guidelines um, because we have um, maybe over 170 people who are, are living in encampments but more importantly, or as importantly, rather, we have over 1,700 um, who are experiencing homelessness. So it's to give a set of community rules or guidelines about because we do not have enough permanent shelter spaces, because we don't have enough permanent housing, where uh, people who are having to live in, in tents and in uh, other outdoor structures, where they can set up t- until we get them into the housing that that they need. Those people in these encampments and advocates for them say, listen, police and bylaw cannot be a part of the equation. Are they part of this equation? You know, this this crisis, unfortunately, has created a lot of, of, of local tensions uh, throughout our communities. There are some who advocate for a tougher response to this crisis based only on enforcement. And there are others who emphasize the need to uphold the dignity and the rights of the people experiencing homelessness. And I I think um, calm, well-intentioned minds have to come together um, and look for a temporary solution, uh, but importantly, lean into the rightful long-term solutions, which I hope are not too long down the road, which is housing. Um, I, 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 I think all parts of community, all parts of Hamilton um, have to uphold the the promise of every individual. And I, I, I don't think that the crisis should be uh, borne, if you will, uh, by one particular part of the city. And so I'm, I'm, I've always advocated for, um, I represent Hamilton, um, and uh, we have to look for a city, uh, whole city support on this. 
Councillor Wilson, are you planning to support this initiative? I, I believe strongly that we do need a protocol. I don't know if your listeners know this, but I, um, when a, a protocol first came for uh, Council's consideration in May, I supported that protocol and I will be supporting this protocol. It's uh, great to know, and I know that's going to be a hearty debate at City Hall later today. Good luck with that, and uh, let's hope we can make a big difference in many people's lives. Thanks for uh, joining us today. May I add one other comment, sure, please? Sure, go ahead. Um, well, I am a listener as well, and um, a very proud Hamiltonian. So I, I would just uh, like to take this opportunity and prerogative to, to thank Bill Kelly of CHML um, for his work in telling the stories of this community for so many years. He's a, a well-respected professional, and he's a decent human being. And I, I just wanted to thank him um, in service in many different ways he served this community, uh, but most recently um, uh, on this station. So thank you. And we thank you for those words. Thanks, Maureen. Enjoy the day. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's Maureen Wilson, Councillor, Ward 1 with the City of Hamilton. Yes, I too was going to mention that Bill has been an outstanding advocate for Hamilton and 900 CHML, and coming up will be his final show here on the radio station. But as he said in his comment earlier this morning, it might be goodbye on this platform, but we'll see you later on another one. Looking forward to hearing and seeing Bill in the not-too-distant future. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, speaking of blackouts and wildfires. We're talking about the wildfire in Hawaii earlier on this morning. There's been an increase in emergencies all over the place, whether it's wildfires here in Canada, the the smoke that we've had to ingest earlier on in this summer, uh, what is happening in other parts in the province in terms of tornadoes, Ottawa getting hit a couple of times. We had a funnel cloud over the weekend in the Hamilton area that was spotted on video. When, When an emergency hits... How can you be prepared? Connie Verhage is the program manager of the Emergency Management Department at the Hamilton Fire Department and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Connie, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine. Thank you for having me. Our conversation comes on this 20th anniversary of the 03 blackout. Do you have any memories of that day? Anything come to mind? <laughs> I do, actually. Uh, I was. I, I remember distinctly working uh, at, at Public Health and all the lights go out i was working on a report and i was like what is going on and i was the the emergency coordinator at that time and uh the emergency coordinator for the city was actually away and uh there was only one other person so i was asked to go over to the operations center over at city hall um which was had backup power um so we had lights and and everything and i remember uh being involved in that response. I remember going to the Hamilton airport and uh, because there was a concern that, you know, were, were these planes going to land? Is there power outage concerns? And there there was. It was, it was. I think it was on a backup generator at that time as well. And nothing was catastrophic at the airport. But it was, it was a day in which, you know, came a couple of years after the 9-11 attacks. And a lot of people are thinking, well, here's terrorism again. And then thankfully it didn't turn out to be that case. Correct, correct. But, you know, it does lead to, do you have a, a preparedness kit so that if the power goes out, if there's an emergency, are you prepared? Do you have a plan? And at the fire department, we, we have a tagline, be ready for anything. And and you, you see that so easily now in emergencies, power outages, wildfires, flooding. And we ask people, are you prepared? So, Do you have a plan? 
So how should people be prepared? Do they need a go bag? Do they need uh, some kind of fire drill that they have to practice? What should people be doing? You know, there, there's three line of defense here. And the first is to make a plan. And, and that that is plan for everything. So plan for a flood, plan for a fire. And, and the, the plan is all about, okay, how do I escape out of this home? How do I escape out of this neighborhood? Um, where's my meeting place? And, and you want to have the meeting place both outside the home and outside your your small community so that if you can't get into your community, where are you going to be meeting your family? Um, you want to have a plan for any special needs of any family members and, and a plan for your pets. You know, I remember in the Fort McMurray fires, we had uh, the fire chief here to talk about that response. And he said, we got everybody out of that community. Everybody was safe and, and out of that community. But then it became an issue of the pets and people calling the operation center saying, my pet is still in the home. Can you retrieve it? And and so you need to think about all of those needs within your, your family, within your home, of how you are going to be prepared. Uh, you know, emergency contact numbers and and you know think about to your home safety checks how do i turn off my gas how do i turn off electrical water those are things that you need to think about and then of course yes there are your your go bag and then is there is your kit that you have at home so that you are prepared for 72 hours within that home in case um, you're not allowed to leave the home Go bags are very important. You saw that in the fires just recently in, in Hawaii. People left their homes with nothing, absolutely nothing. And if you had that bag right by the front entrance, out you go, at least you have some essentials in that kit. And that's your go bag, Rick. That is your, that's your essentials. That's your, um, you know, an extra change of clothes, your phone charger, uh, prescription for drugs. Um, things that you have to think about that meet your needs and your family needs. That's what you need to be thinking about. I, I would almost guarantee that not many people listening right now have have any of this stuff in place because the mindset is, oh, it's never going to happen to me or it's never going to happen here, but it could and it has. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. And, and that's why we want people to be thinking about this and to kind of go through, like, go through a checklist. Think about it. Have a family meeting. Talk about it with the people in your home. If this happened, what do we do? And we make it kind of a fun game. If I'm looking after nieces and nephews and they're they're small, we talk about, okay, how do we get out of this house quickly? What do we need to take with us? And, and you know, I remember one time one little kid said to me, if I have to escape this home, I'm going to take my brother. I thought, <laughs> what a great answer. <laughs> but just get out of the home. Think about it. When I leave this home, what do I need? What do I need to be prepared for 72 hours? What do I need if I have to leave this home um, and I, I that my home's destroyed? What's important to me? Your insurance papers, your passports, uh, very important documents. Get Make sure those are copies of those are in that go bag um, or, or the actual documents. Just think about what you need. All great tips, and it comes on a timely anniversary as well. Connie, thank you very much for your time this morning, and have a great day. 
Oh, thank you very much. Connie Verhage is the program manager manager of emergency management at the Hamilton Fire Department. And yeah, I, I think the sentiment or the thought is, that's never going to happen to me. It, it could. And if it does, if you follow Connie's tips, you will be extra prepared. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. One of the big issues we are dealing with in today's day and age is the cost of living. Inflation being where it is, food prices where they are, gas has risen, it seems, by the day as we draw closer to uh, September. Even though we're still in kind of mid-August, there are you know, mortgage rates, interest rates, everything Everything costs more these days. That puts a lot of pressure on a lot of people. And a lot of people in this community, including children, are having to access a food bank or some other support to help connect the dots, to help make ends meet. And so it's really exciting to hear that Hamilton's neighbor-to-neighbor has a new leader. New Executive Director Barrington Hector is uh, the new big boss at Neighbor-to-Neighbor, and Barrington joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Barrington, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm I'm, I'm well. Good morning, Hamilton. So you are the new Executive Director of Neighbor-to-Neighbor. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's right. Um, uh, you know, I'm I'm thrilled to be the new executive director at the center. Uh, it's an organization with a rich history and a bright future. Uh, myself, I'm uh, I'm a 37 year old, uh, you know, um, who's who's worked in the nonprofit space for uh, the better part of uh, what feels like two decades now, starting pretty late in my teens. And um, yeah, I just I have a background in social work and, and community development and. Uh, a father of a 15-month-old, so if I'm a bit uh, a bit energyless this morning, that that is the reason. He is teething and uh, unwell this weekend, so we're all teething and unwell this weekend. If you if you can catch my drift, what? And uh, like yourself, Rick, I'm a, I'm a former Torontonian, um, you know, who saw the error in my ways and, and decided to to move uh, move move uh, west to Hamilton. <laughs> what drew you to this field? Uh, you know, um, myself, I've got lived experience, uh, so, you know, I know firsthand uh, the critical supports organization like Neighbor to Neighbor provide and individuals and families. I grew up in some of Toronto's lowest income communities, and my family often relied on these services. So I was always drawn to the field. I was wanting to uh, provide support where I could, and uh, thankfully, I, I'm pretty good at it. So, uh, you know, developing community and, and bringing folks together to solve community-based issues. Barrington Hector is the new executive director at Neighbor to Neighbor, and our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. I, I referenced the cost of living off the top, and that certainly impacts the need in a community like Hamilton, but it also impacts uh, the amount of donations that uh, places like Neighbor to Neighbor can get because money is tight. This is certainly a double whammy. How do you deal with it? Yeah, that's right, Rick. Um, I'm glad you referenced that because uh, we were seeing greater need uh, because of staggering rates of poverty, economic uncertainty, so on and so forth with with, uh, inflation. And uh, it it does impact the donations we get. So, you know, we're having to be a bit more strategic in terms of, um, you know, how much we're able to provide and how often. And, um, you know, looking at um, other means and other creative ways of of, of getting donations, right? So another big piece of that is making sure that we're we're leveraging um, our relationships with government and ensuring that, uh, you know, those folks uh, at all levels of government know what uh, you know what challenges folks on the ground are facing, and making sure that governments are doing what they can to um, what they should be uh, to meet that uh, meet that need. Safe to say that there is a concern about uh, enough to go around in the community. What, what is that level of concern at? 
it, it's 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 very serious, Rick. Um, you know, right across Hamilton, all of the um, the food support agencies are seeing an increase. Right um, in our last fiscal year, we saw a twenty percent increase in our food bank usage, with um, with a fifty percent increase in uh, growth in new families accessing the food bank. So we're seeing folks who traditionally wouldn't access the food bank are now accessing food banks. Right? You you mentioned mortgages just as one piece. Right? Uh, folks are seeing their mortgages in some cases double. Right. Um, so middle income families now uh, having to access, um, you know, food banks is, is a real concern as well. Right. Um, so what, what can we do as community? I know we can do more. Uh, we're one of the wealthiest nations in the world. So it's just about, um, you know, finding creative solutions to those problems. How many people are accessing the services at Neighbor to Neighbor these days? Uh, monthly, we're at 1,500 uh, folks on the mountain that are access, accessing the uh, the uh, food bank. And so and we have our Hamilton Community Food Center as well, which provides more uh, community-based uh, food solutions uh, to food insecurity. And so that's 20% higher than this time last year? That's correct. That's correct, Rick, yeah. What are the big goals you want to achieve? With, with any new boss in a new organization, they want to put their stamp on things. What do you have in mind to take neighbor-to-neighbor to the next step and, and uh, assist more individuals? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, you know, Hamilton has experienced a great deal of growth and development, um, you know, right across the board. And I think with that comes opportunity and potential for creative partnerships in both uh, the private and public sector. So looking at some of those opportunities, right, relationship building, um, we, we currently have uh, three locations, two that have uh, have services and then one that's a warehouse for uh, some of our, um, our, our donations uh, during the bigger, busier uh, seasons, Christmas and Thanksgiving. We're looking at bringing all those in one space. So that would be a big capital campaign and, and you know, finding um, finding a location that's suitable and, and still in our catchment area. Uh, so we're looking at that piece, um, you know, and then really just looking at building some of those relationships again with our other, um, you know, nonprofits and, and charities in the sector. And then looking at ways we can, um, you know, approach government again, uh, particularly at the municipal level, to, um, to do more, right? Um, the need's there, and uh, we're willing to do the work, but uh, we are all at capacity. So we're looking at ways to, uh, to increase our capacity and our support so that we can just serve more folks who need the support. I will encourage our listeners, if they do find it in their heart, that they can uh, financially help neighbor to neighbor. You can go online for all those details in the number 2 ncenter.com, n2ncenter.com. Barrington, uh, thanks for the time today. Good luck going forward, and we'll certainly touch base uh, sometime in the future. Appreciate it, Rick. All the best. Barrington Hector is the new executive director of Neighbor to Neighbor. And that website again, n the number two n center.com. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.